Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. Where we discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Pep, it's great to see you again this morning. Man, after last week, we were set to record, and my goodness, man. Yeah, it's been a crazy, crazy week here. You know, we have the beast had crossed the threshold. Mm. Uh, We had COVID in the house. Um, Both my daughter and my son tested positive, and uh, Hope is now out of quarantine and back at her school and doing all those things, and Coleman has one last day where he's locked up in his room. And, you know, it's just been crazy because, you know, in addition to, you know, I work from home and in addition to working from home, my wife got sick too. So I became the food and beverage director um, (laughs) here in the house. And in between meetings on Zoom, I'm running and preparing and running them up the stairs and trying to keep everything uh, going. And I just feel like I need a moment to just sort of breathe this morning, you know, even before... This call today, you know, we're, we're recording this podcast, you know, we started about 10 o'clock this morning and I've already had several meetings this morning. Um, I've had kids to drive to school. I've had all the things like we all do. There's just everything just seems so chopped yeah. up and compartmentalized. And when I get here, it's like, OK, I want to focus. <laughs> I want to focus. But I've, you know, um, and then you know, in the course of all this being working at home. And having to learn new technologies on the daily, mm. Mm. you know, mm. that you know, people needing things urgently, and I don't, <laughs> right, and I don't know how to get it to them. Right. I mean, at our um, age, at our age, urgent is like something that we go to, right? We go to the urgent care center. It, it's <laughs> yeah, not a exactly. thing that we're necessarily able to be. We're not able to be like flexibly adapt. No, we, we just go right. there. I think it's good for me to be having to do those things, but it, in, the, in the moment, it doesn't feel like it's good for me at right. all. Right. Yeah, um, I get that. Yeah, so it's just been a it's been a morning already, and um, I'm excited about today. You know, this week I've been I was I was thinking about as I was thinking about the whole integration thing that we introduced last week, and we're going to be beginning our talking about the nine domains of integration today. I was I was driving around town. I have this um, this great old Jeep Wrangler. It's I, I love it. It's a um, it's like a 2002. It's got fairly low miles on it. It's my everyday driver, but it's it's kind of a beast. It's kind of rugged. Like it's you, a five-speed manual transmission. Exactly. <laughs> you are a five-speed manual transmission. <laughs> That's right. With a big beast of an engine under the hood. Pepper the know, Wrangler on. Sweeney. That's right. That's right. So I'm driving around town, and I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, integration. I'm thinking about what we're going to be talking about today, um, thinking about consciousness mm-hmm. and my rearview mirror falls off the window <laughs> because the Jeep rumbling, it falls off the window. Just like that. And uh, Right, just like that. And so for a moment, I was actually kind of happy about this because my the biggest pet peeve to me is when somebody's tailgating me. I just can't stand it. Well, right now it's like I can't even tell if there's anybody back there. So ignorance is bliss in a way. But I'm realizing, look, I'm conscious of what's in front of me. Hmm. I'm conscious of what's on the sides of me, hmm. but I have no idea right now what's going on behind me. Right. And it's kind of a dangerous situation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, to, to not be fully conscious of all of my environments, especially when I'm, you know, hurling down the road at right. high speeds. Right. So you want to you wanna be able to be aware. Right. And I was just thinking about, you know, how does this tie into the domain of integration that we're going to be talking about today, which right. is consciousness? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 
such a great story, Pepper, because I think that there are so many things that you've just highlighted that are true for our everyday life. I mean, how many times have we, have, have any of us found ourselves, first of all, being relieved in our not having to pay attention to things that can be anxiety provoking for us? Interesting. Right? I mean, yeah, how many times do I like actually try to rip off my rearview mirror as a way to not have to look at my past, as a way to not have to look at the things that are in my rearview mirror? I so it, sometimes it doesn't just happen accidentally; it happens quite on purpose. And I see that look on your face. Do you have a thought? No, no, I, of course not. I'm I'm a blank slate, buddy. No, <laughs> I'm just in agreement. I mean, it, it's like you know, I, there's there there are times where we just, you know, like I said, ignorance is bliss, and mm. we just don't we just want to pretend mm. like it's not there, right? You know, that eighteen wheeler that's barreling down right. on the back of us, and, right? Right. You know, it feels better just to not know it's there because it, if I look at it, it's anxiety producing right. and, you know, anger producing. And why is he trying to intimidate me and all those kind of things? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So we have introduced this notion today. And for our listeners, you all are listening to this notion of consciousness that this first we like to talk about this notion of integration, which we introduced last week. I have to correct what I'd said. I had, I had mentioned uh, we, and we'd even invited our audience to listen to Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And yes. I went back and listened to that and then discovered it was actually his Ninth Symphony that I was thinking about and referring to the Ninth Symphony being the one that his big choral arrangement from which we have great hymns and so forth. But the Seventh Symphony also considered to be one of his masterpieces, as if any of them weren't. But I think about this notion of integration and how we talk about a symphony orchestra. We talk about this idea of differentiated parts that our mind senses and images and feels and thinks. And we have these differentiated domains. And we need to have a conductor for this orchestra. We need to have someone that all of the different parts can look to. And so we talk about the prefrontal cortex as being the place in the human mind where these things come together. And pursuant to the name of this podcast being known, we all, we all out there, we all long to be known in order for integration to take place. It is in that process of being known by being seen by the other. And the first thing that has to happen in order for that to take place is we actually have to be conscious. We have to be aware of what is happening in our world in order for those things to be integrated. If I'm the conductor, I have to be aware that I do have different parts of the orchestra that I have to pay attention to, let alone that I'm gonna bring them together. And so one of the things that we talk about in neuroscience is this question of consciousness. Like, what does it mean to be conscious? And what is consciousness from a scientific standpoint? And there are a couple of really elegant ideas that are out there making their way through the neuroscientific community at this point. But even with them, we don't really know what consciousness is. We, we haven't been able to find the blueprint of that. We haven't been able to find, crack the code that tells us what is it what does it mean to be conscious as a human? How is it? How is being human actually ultimately different than being, you know, being a higher primate? Let alone being a squirrel. How does it? How is that going to be? What does it mean for us to be aware, in the way that we really are aware? Like I don't just think. I'm able to reflect on what I'm thinking about. 
And so we have this capacity to be conscious of so many different parts of our lives. And yet it is those parts of our lives, what we sense and image and feel and think that create experiences within us. Some are more pleasing and some are more displeasing and disintegrating and disruptive. And a lot of those I don't want to pay attention to. I don't want to pay attention to them because they create challenges for us. We'll talk later about how we tell stories in the narrative domain and how the way that I tell a story often excludes certain parts of my mind's activity, certain parts of my story, certain parts of my history, because they're too painful for me to incorporate. And when I exclude them, when I don't pay attention to them, my brain is going to have to then burn energy to contain the disintegrated felt sense of what that is. And that energy that the brain has to burn to contain those things I'm going to keep out of my awareness is not going to be available to me to create the beauty and goodness in the world that God is calling us to create because it's being siphoned off to manage all this other stuff that I'm having to manage. We like to talk about these three words that all begin with the letter A when we explore what it means to be conscious. The first is, am I awake in the world? Am I awake? Now, of course, I don't just mean, you know, did I get out of bed when my alarm went off this morning? I mean, am I fully awake to what's happening both in my world, outside of my skin and inside of my mind? Am I awake to those things? And the second thing is, am I alert to it? All right, we have plenty of times when we know that we're awake, but we first got, we got to get our coffee before we do anything else, right? We, I got to get my coffee before I move from being awake to being alert. And there's this kind of like this phase in of being awake and then I'm alert and then I want to be attuned. So in relationships, we talk about, we might be, you know, conscious we're in the room, I'm awake, but am I alert to what's happening, not just within me, but within you, within my wife, within my kids, within my friends, my neighbors, within my enemies? Are we actually alert to those things? Are we tuning in? And then are we attuned? And by attunement, I don't just mean have I tuned in in the way that I tune in my radio station. I do want to tune in, but I want to tune in in order to really hear clearly. I want to understand. I want to feel what you feel. I want to understand what you un- what you understand. I want to know what it's like for you to be in your shoes. I want to not just be awake and be in the room with you. I don't just want to be aware that you are in the room. I don't just so I don't just want to be awake and I'm aware that I'm in the room. I want to be alert to the notion that you're in the room, and then I also want to be attuned to what's actually going on with you and within me and how we are interchanging interacting with each other. And it's hard for us sometimes to be awake, let alone alert and attuned, because for many of us our stories that we live with interrupt some of the flow of those things. And so as we move forward, we know that I can't talk about any of the other domains of my life if I'm not actually awake, alert, and attuned to them, including the reality that it's not just me who's in the world, that I'm constantly in this intersecting world of relationships, whether somebody's in the room with me or not. My father, who's been dead since I was 17, he and I are in relationship with each other, whether he's in the room or not. Like, he's in the room. He's still in the room. He is in the room. 
My mom, yeah. like she is in the room. This is true for so many of us. And the question then becomes, what are the things that I'm doing to help me maintain being awake, alert, and attuned as we're on the road to consciousness? And, and that's a great question. What are the things, right? I mean, what are the things that we need to do uh, to practice, to be awake, alert, and attuned? So we like to talk about this in, in the world of interpersonal neurobiology. My friend and colleague Dan Siegel likes to talk about this notion of the tripod of awareness. If I'm going to be fully aware, you all out there, you can, you can think of it in these, in these terms. If you imagine a movie camera that's shooting the film footage of your life, and it, if it was you know, projecting up on the screen, everything about your life that's both going on inside your mind and that you were encountering in, encountering in your day-to-day activity, that camera would sit on a tripod, and that tripod has three legs. I suppose that's redundant. A tripod wouldn't have four legs. It only has three legs. Otherwise, we call it a quad, quad pod. pod. Right, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for helping me with that. And then, and then we'd have to come up with like four words that all begin with the letter Q, I think. But instead, we're going to come up with three words, each that begin with the letter O, that stands for a leg of this tripod. And the first word is the word open. Are we able to be open to all the things that we are sensing, imaging, feeling, thinking, and behaving? And by being open, I'm not talking about simply being open to acting on all the things that we sense and image and feel. We're not just saying that all that comes into us is good. We're not, we're not tending to qualify it or morally judge it. We're just suggesting that we want to be open to all the things that are there. I don't want to necessarily initially and impulsively close myself off to my mind. If I'm a conductor of an orchestra, I need to be open to all that the instruments are bringing to me, even if even if what some of those instruments are bringing are like are mistakes. I want to hear that. I need to be open to that in order for me to correct it. I don't want to close myself off and pretend it's not there just because I don't like what I'm hearing in order for me then to just go on with the symphony. Because then when we play this for the audience, like there's going to be these other things going on. They're going to interfere with things. So I want to be open to what I'm sensing, imaging, feeling, thinking, and what my body's impulse wants to be. The second O, the second leg of this tripod, is that I then want to be observant. I sense something. I sense arousal. I sense anger. I sense joy. I sense fatigue. I sense a whole range of things. Am I able to observe it instead of judge it? We're so quick to condemn so many things. We are having this conversation in the context of asking the question, what does it mean to be known in the Christian worldview? What does it mean to be known in the biblical narrative? What does it mean to be known when we're looking at things from a Christian anthropology, from what it means to be human from that perspective? And we want to be able to observe things without first condemning them. And, you know, I, like I, I, I grew up in a house where, as I've said here perhaps before, where certain emotional states really just weren't permitted. 
we no, we weren't going to be open, let alone observe being angry. Right? Nobody was allowed to be angry at my dad. Now, it's not like you know there was an open order put out for everybody. Right. Like no, no APBs were issued for anybody who's angry at Lewis Thompson. But there was a sense in which we're not really allowed. Like we're not open to that. And so I didn't observe anger. We didn't like, nobody said like, well, you, you sound angry. Let's talk about that. We just have, wasn't ever allowed. And so I could never observe it. Instead, it was judged immediately. If I'm angry, then that, there's something wrong with that. And I'm going to be in trouble if I express that. That's like, I don't want my anger to be something I look at in my rearview mirror. And so I, I, like, I, don't, I don't want to look at that at all. And so I'll take the rearview mirror off. I'm glad when it falls off because I'm going to ignore this. But of course, if I practice ignoring anger in my first 20 years of life, it means by the time I get married to a woman who's more than happy to tell me when she's angry, and I mean this because she's just, she was just more you know, open and adaptive than I was. She could just say when she was angry, like this is like scaring the living daylights out of me. I'm 6'2", and I weigh 200 pounds, and I'm, like, afraid. Like, how does, that, how does that work? Well, I wasn't able to be observant. But we want to be able to observe and be curious about those things that we sense and image and feel and think, the elements of our story that we want to understand better. And then the last thing, the last, oh, the last part of this tripod is the word objective. And when we use the word objective, I want to be, I want to say I want to be open, I want to be observant. And by objective, we don't mean as opposed to subjective. Objective like in some, oh, this is what science tells us, this is true and real. But objective meaning that the more open I am and the more observant I am, the more I observe, the more of the object that I see. When I find myself open and observant to my irritability, for instance, I can begin to see that my irritability might have a lot more to do with what my longings are. It's not just about being irritable. It is about my longing for closeness, my longing to be connected. And that's a lot different than me just saying, oh, I'm just pissed off. But I can't see the entire object of my story if I'm not first open and then observant to the fullness of what my irritability, where my irritability is coming from. And so you all out who are listening, you're, you're listening to this and I'm, I'm wondering where in your stories have you found it difficult to be open, let alone to observe, in order to be objective about the entire story that God wants us to be aware of in order for all of it to be redeemed so that fear and shame are transformed and such that we then can tell a new story of beauty and goodness. You know, Pepper, I, we, we tell people that we're working with that we understand, we, we, we see our life coming at us through the windshield. So your, your example today is just so spot on. We see our life coming at us through the windshield, but we only understand our life through the rear view mirror. I only understand my life by figuring it out after it's gone by me. But there are so many parts of my story that I sometimes really find pain, too painful for me to be open to or observe or be objective about. And so we're kind of left stranded. And then eventually our symptoms find us, whether those symptoms... Well, right. Yeah. I, I think it's a rare person that wants to look in that mirror and see that until... Sometimes until it's too late, sometimes until you're forced to, sometimes until, you know, God just puts it right in front of you and says, hey, 
you have to be open, observant, and objective about what's happening right now, or I'm going to force you to. Right. Right. It's it's not easy work to do. Right. Like it's you know, um, but I think in relationship it's more palatable mm-hmm. if I have somebody that I'm doing it with. Right. Right. Well, I think about uh, I, I think about other friendships I have. I think about our friendship. I, I, I again, we've we've referenced these conversations that you and I've had over the years, in which we've both revealed things to each other, in which it's felt vulnerable to do that. And in some respects, you become my rearview mirror. You become the mirror into which I look. And yet, what I'm looking at, because I'm actually looking at something in my life with you. And I'm now not just looking at it in the privacy of my own mind. You're being with me as we look at it. And you're being present and compassionate. And at the same time, being able to hold my feet to the fire, as it were, about things that I want to be different, that I long to be different. That goes a long way in transforming my story because the mirror is actually present with me. And so you actually help me be more awake, alert, and attuned. You strengthen my not just capacity, but courage to be open, observant, and objective. And as such, more of my story is told in light of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, because where two or more are gathered, there will I be also in your presence. Getting the sense that Jesus is always at work anytime you and I are talking to each other. We believe that even as we're having this podcast and our listeners, you all are listening to us and we're together in this, that the Holy Spirit is weaving our conversation together with your story, with our stories in such a way that that tripod stands on firmer and firmer ground, even as we share with one another the things that we're talking about. You know, one of the primary neurobiological functions that is involved in all this is what we commonly call attention, our attentional mechanism. If I'm going to be open and observant and objective, I have to pay attention to what I'm paying attention to. That's one of the most important questions that we ask folks. We talk about the function of attention that for the most part, most researchers would say really is housed primarily in the front right part of the brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And could you say that just so that I know that you heard me say that? The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Yes, thank you. And so I know that you all could get that. I'm, I'm just pleased that I was able to say it without tripping over my own tongue, that we ask the question, how well are you paying attention to what you're paying attention to? Because attention really is the ignition key to the engine of the mind. There's nothing that we do that we do that is not a function of a shift in our attention. And what we pay attention to is what we then remember. We'll talk about memory in a few episodes. What we pay attention to, we remember, and what we remember becomes our anticipated future, and our anticipated future is constantly circling back into our present moment, shaping what we're doing in the here and now. And so I have parts of my story that I either do or don't pay attention to, parts of my story that before you and I met, I told a certain way. After you and I have met, I'm telling a very different way that enables me to anticipate a future much more hopefully because there are certain parts of my story where shame has lurked that it no longer does. And so 
This whole notion of changing our neural network circuitry, what we call neuroplasticity, is shaped primarily by how we direct our attention. With our attention, we say that we like to snag the brain. We like to stimulate neuronal activation and growth. We like to say out, you know, for for if if I want the renewal of my mind to take place, that's not just metaphor. This is about changing the direction and contour and firing patterns of my brain, and I want to snag those neurons. And so that acronym SNAG, S-N-A-G, I stimulate neuronal activation and growth, and that changes my brain structure while my mind is being renewed. And the thing is, we need other people. I need you to help me do this. I don't do this very efficiently or very well when I'm by myself. When I have other people in my life by whom I'm being known, their coming to find me enables me to pay attention to the things that I find hard to pay attention to. I have a tendency to avoid paying attention to the hard things about my story. Sure. And the more I don't pay attention to those things, the more likely I end up to be a person of addiction because I'm going to use addictions to cope with all that stuff that I can't cope with. And therefore, it makes it really difficult ultimately for me to pay deep attention to what I really want and the beauty that is wrapped up in that. Instead, I get kind of like short-circuited into these addiction kind of dead ends because I'm not able to pay attention because I've either taken the rearview mirror off or it's fallen off and I'm not seeing what I want to see. I think as we think about wrapping up this episode, I think about some things that we can do to actually practice paying attention. How we can practice becoming more open, observant, and objective. One of those things is the practice of mindfulness meditation. There's a lovely book called Into the Silent Land by Martin Laird. It's a short book written by this gentleman. He's a, he's a, he's a Catholic gentleman. Oh, Pep's holding it up. It's a beautiful book. Wow. <laughs> it is. Right on cue. My, my word. Yes. Mention another book. We'll see if I have it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Into the Silent uh-huh. Land. And, and one of the things that you learn about is that the, the, the meditative practice of silence, like, and, and he, he focuses on the, the 62nd Psalm. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. We hear this opening line from the, from the psalmist, this notion that when I'm practicing silence in this way, I strengthen my capacity to be present with my mind's activity and become unafraid of all the different things that are banging around in my head. That's one exercise, the practice of mindfulness meditation, especially as we exercise meditation on, the, on, on, on scriptural passages, when we meditate on beauty, when we meditate on experiences that we've had with other people in which we feel deeply known. And throughout our time, we'll come back to some of the other exercises that we can do as far as being able to strengthen our attention's mechanism I think with that, I'm just going to ask you if you've got other further thoughts, questions. You know, this whole idea of that you introduced me to of just paying attention to what you're paying attention to as yeah. you go about your day has been um, really helpful to me. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that um, that there are a lot of times where, you know, you, I, I would be spending time paying attention to stuff that isn't helpful to me, mm-hmm. isn't, you know, what what is what I should be being awake, alert, and attuned to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And just that reminder of, you know, going about my day and thinking, okay, what am I paying attention to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are, you know, what are the things that I, and what, what is actually happening here? Mm-hmm. What, you know, um, uh, has been something that's been just a, a helpful practice for me. And I'm trying to add in the idea of silence. And I'm wondering if, if you have a, uh, I, from, from Laird's book, if you could talk for a minute about the practice of the breathing and the prayer word, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe we can encourage people to try this a couple of times mm-hmm. this week. And mm-hmm. if we just talk about that one practice, I think that could be good. Right. And we can all do this at home. It's not hard to do. This is the beauty of what, uh, the, the, what, we, what we like to call the beauty of the breath, this notion that our pulmonary function, our breathing, is the one thing about our bodies that is both automatic we don't have to think about it. It does it on its own, but that we can also regulate quite easily and quite well. And the notion of breathing more deeply and breathing more slowly requires us to pay attention to that. And so the practice as it unfolds is you can simply find yourself in a quiet space and in a comfortable position, a comfortable posture, both feet on the ground, Allow yourself to be comfortable often with your palms open, although for some folks that's not as comfortable, but find a comfortable position. Allow your eyes to close and take two long, deep cleansing breaths. And after those long, deep cleansing breaths come, you can begin to pay attention to your breath eventually. We actually take people through an exercise often in which we start with just enabling them to pay attention first to their body, their their legs, their torso, and then even their chest wall as they're breathing. And then allowing their attention to focus on their breath itself, become, and which is not easy to do because like you can't see it. All you can do is kind of feel it a bit as it comes passes through your nostrils or maybe the back of your throat. But quietly, deeply breathing in and out and We associate that, as Laird does, we associate that breathing in with a prayer word. And it can be a a very short phrase or it can be a word. So some folks will say, for instance, with the inhalation, we can, can, in, in our mind, say to ourselves, Lord Jesus Christ, for instance, and then on the exhale, have mercy on me. Some will even get it to the point where it's so short where it's just, Lord Jesus, as I inhale, help as I exhale. We'll find that when we do this, that my mind will start to want to go all over the place. I will be thinking about all kinds of things other than my breath and the prayer word. And the work involved, as Laird properly and helpfully instructs us, is that when we sense our mind wandering away from the prayer word and from our breath to all these other myriad of things that we have to do, that we're thinking about, that we're worrying about, that we allow, without judgment, to return our attention to our breath and to the prayer word. We use the prayer word as a bit of an anchor, as something that we know we can return to over and over and over again. It's often said that masters of this practice, you would think, oh, well, they just stay on the prayer word and they can meditate for you know 20 minutes to an hour without ever leaving. But what masters will tell you is that no, in fact, the more practiced you become at this, the more frequently you are aware of how often your mind leaves the prayer word, how distracted you are. With me, when I'm when I first started this, I would only notice that I, you know, returned to the prayer word a couple times in 20 minutes. It's because it took me 15 minutes to discover that I was like wandering off the path before I'd ever like w- like woke up to, oh, I'm not even paying attention to the fact that I'm not paying any attention anymore. 
This exercise, I think, serves a larger purpose as well, not just what it does in the moments that we're practicing it, but it then becomes like strengthening a muscle that you can use in other times in your day. When you find yourself, you you become more acutely aware of when your attention is moving someplace else that you don't want it to be. And even at two o'clock in the afternoon, when you're in the middle of a meeting and you find yourself getting anxious about something, simply returning to your prayer word, taking two deep breaths, changes everything about how you are open, observant, and objective to that present moment. Being fully awake, fully alert, and attuned, looking for God to be at work creating beauty and goodness, even in moments when it feels like you're in the middle of a fight, when it feels like you're anxious or afraid, when it feels like you're about to do something in some addictive way that you really don't want to be doing. And so it is a way for us to practice getting ready to be attentive to the beauty that is about to unfold that God wants us to co-labor with him to create. So I want to take this opportunity to tell you folks about uh, the Center for Being Known and uh, actually have Kurt tell you about the Center of Being Known. They have an event coming up and uh, I'm excited about it personally. Kurt, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the Center for Being Known and about this event that you have that you're planning. Thanks, Pep. Most of you will not be aware that for a number of years uh, in hibernation has been a small nonprofit organization called the Center for Being Known. And we exist for the mission of being able to create a space where people can come together and be connected. Anyone who really has an interest or a vested stake in what's taking place in life at this intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. And as it turns out, that's not just something that applies to psychotherapy or to the mental health field. We believe that this place of convergence of neuroscience and spiritual formation is something that has application deeply in many realms, in fact, every realm of vocational domain that we occupy. So whether you're in church ministry or you're in education or you're running a law practice or an accounting firm or you're a carpenter or you're a truck driver, whatever it is, if you're a gardener or a farmer, whatever it is, we want this to be a space where you can come together and be connected with like-minded people who are asking the questions, how can these questions of neuroscience and spiritual formation speak into my life in practical ways that I can then take away and then apply this and actually even create a community of my own who can both exercise and engage and apply these principles in our own particular domains of life. And to that end, CBK, as we call it, the Center for Being Known, will be having its inaugural annual conference virtually on October 22nd, Friday, October 22nd, this coming year, this coming fall, 2021. And we would invite you all to be there. You can find out more information about this by looking online at thecbk.org, thecbk.org. We expect that this is going to be an opportunity for people of a wide range of different communities, different vocational callings to come together to be nourished in this way of neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation. In fact, we're going to have four speakers 
including myself, four other speakers who will be giving us a window into how they are applying this work, one in ministry, one in education, one in leadership, and one in the field of psychotherapy. Each of them, uh, people that I know personally and that are really skilled at applying this kind of work. And so with that in mind, I wanna invite you all to consider doing that again, October 22nd, 2021, our first annual CBK conference called Connections. Please join us there. Excellent. So you can find out more at the cbk.org. So as a challenge for this week, you know, it's hard when you start thinking about doing something like this and you think, okay, how much time can I really dedicate to sitting and, and doing this? So it would seem to me that if the, like other things, the more times that we do it, the stronger we'll get and the more prepared we'll be to help in other aspects of our lives. So how should we challenge people this week to, you know, the amount of time, the amount of frequency and that kind of thing? Right. I say, let's do it in a, in a way that makes it uh, easy for us to do so we, we don't find that it's just like climbing Everest. So I tell people when you begin this, literally try to do it for 60 seconds. See what it feels like for 60 seconds and then maybe move to three minutes and then maybe five minutes. Try this for five minutes once a day for the first week and then maybe okay. move it to 10 minutes once a day. Eventually, we like to have people extend this out so that this is the first thing that they're doing for maybe anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes in the morning and 10 to 20 minutes in the evening. And the more you practice this and become efficient at it, you will find yourself dropping into these spaces for 30 seconds at a time throughout your day, enabling this to have that tripod of awareness grounded being aware of your being, as we say, in Christ, whose life is, we are hidden with Christ in God, sitting at his right hand, visualizing, imagining this, looking for the beauty that is to unfold before us. And we do this because we become more efficient at things when we practice things for a short period of time more frequently than for longer periods of time less frequently. So your uh, admonition for that is really well taken. Great, great. So uh, I accept the challenge, um, and uh, I will be doing this. And I and I, I want to just want to say that you know everybody just expect to feel uncomfortable with this in the beginning. Yeah, um, it's a bit awkward if you've never done it before. Um, but if we can stick to it and we get through it this week, then we, you know, just try it again next week. And and I think the benefits um, will all reap. So thank you, Kurt. Thanks for a great day. Really appreciated this conversation. Thanks, Pat. Um, uh, just a reminder, everybody, that we are going through the nine domains of integration uh, throughout this first season. Um, and uh, today we had our first conversation about it. I thought it was great. Thanks, Kurt. I love you, buddy. Thanks, Pat. Love you too, man. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is by Keaton Simons. If you'd like to connect with us, you can visit us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well, be known. <laughs>